Hi everyone, uh, I'm Adam Deere. Welcome to Creative Connections. Joining me today is uh, ballerina Mary Lee. Mary, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi Adam, nice to be here. And so uh, you have a new book, uh, Mary's Last Dance. It came out a few weeks ago. Uh, it's fantastic. It covers everything. I've got it here. It covers everything from uh, your childhood, your career, relationships, uh, marriage, parenthood, now, you grew up in, in Rockhampton in Queensland with seven siblings, dubbed the Wild Woman of Borneo by your ballet teacher, Miss Hanson. Uh, did that title ever resonate with you? Um, well, it, I, I think it probably suited me very well when I was younger, and um, I think that sort of strength of character always sort of stayed with me and actually it's um it's held me in good stead really because you know when you're on stage you need to have certain personality and um so it always came in handy and I got a lot of the strong roles to start with and then um you know they saw that I had talent and then I got the sort of mixture roles and the softer roles so I could I could do actually both. I did Queen of the Willies and I did Giselle. I did the Black and the White Swan. So I wasn't sort of stereotyped, which was great, actually, because it gave me a vast array of opportunities. Mm. And, yeah, and you mentioned in the book that, you know, you entered the ballet studio as an eight-year-old and you had this sense of knowing that this was it. Could you uh, just sort of elaborate on what, what that kind of meant for you? Yeah, look, I, I don't think I knew what, um, you know, if there was a pathway or anything, not like children know today. Mm. I didn't even know there was a career in something, but I just knew I loved the music. I loved the um, all the girls. And, I mean, when I went in at eight, I got taught straight away. You know, there wasn't any fairing around or anything. This woman just taught you the real stuff. So, um and I love that. Um, I was a very physical learner, so learning that process um, and getting straight into jumping in the air and learning polkas and then learning a birdcage dance and interpreting the music. I mean, it, it was just, you know, we did, I remember we did a bit of a improvisation, which I thought was fantastic. Yeah. So I just loved all that. And then you got to go on stage, which I figured out at the end of it. And then I really loved that. And I was never um, frightened of that, funnily enough. So I just loved it from from the beginning. And getting on stage was like an extra bonus. So did you feel yeah. that the other people in the other students were a lot more cautious than you? Uh, probably not in the beginning. I mean, I had to catch up quite a bit. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah so, um, but then, then they all kind of dropped out and, um, you know, when I, I guess about 13 or 14 and my sort of passion just really started to build even more. That's when it, that's when it got really hard. And that's when I kind of enjoyed it the most, you know, and it was a lot of just technique, you know, really repetition and a lot of the people dropped out. So there was, the, you know, there was fewer students dealing with Miss Hanson and she was tough. Mm. So, um, and, and do you feel- I, just, I just didn't want to be anywhere else. Yes. 
and Did there wasn't hmm. oh sorry sorry oh, go on yeah there wasn't you know towards the end there wasn't many competitions or anything like that there was no real cake at the end of it it was basically exams so um you know and we trained really hard and that was it you got an exam and then you got a result um until she said you know to my parents to um say some money because if I could if, if I could get into the Royal Ballet School that I should go and that's when I went at 16 and to London lucky yes yeah and yeah as, as you're saying as a 16 year old you got accepted into the Royal Ballet School in London I imagine you had to grow up pretty quickly yeah, look, I think I was always pretty grown up. Maybe that's because I was the eldest girl and mum kept having babies. So I was yeah. a boy. <laughs> so I think, you know, I was fairly grown up and I was a very adventurous. So I was always looking out. So somehow I don't think I would have been satisfied if I'd sort of stayed at home. And I think actually my mother, who was very genteel and quite different to me, kind of understood that, that I was a very free spirit like my father, and um, and so I had to find my own path. So I was very lucky, really, in that respect. So I just took life head on, really, made my own decisions from an early age, figured things out, was very street smart, really. Um, you know, being a colonial in London in the 70s, they weren't very helpful. Yeah, right. Yeah, I bet. Is there any uh, kind of story that stands out of of that happening yeah well i when um when i got my first job with um london festival ballet dame beryl gray came to me and said you know uh, three days later i'm sorry um sorry papa do you have to go um your visa's not um set and walked away and that was it yeah right and I left home, I remember, I left the studio, you know, no one said anything. I walked out of that studio, sobbed all the way home. And my flatmates, who happened to be South African, they just said, oh, don't worry about it. Off you go to Paris and come through Paris and just tell them you're working in a bar. And you go back in and you'll get a visa for three months. And that's what I did. So that's pretty grown up stuff. I just did it. Yeah. So it, yeah. it sounds like you just had that sense of I need to just do what I need to to make it work. On reflection, when you write something like that, you think about it and you think, oh, yeah, okay, that was pretty brave. Yeah. Because you didn't have parent parental influence because you couldn't, A, you couldn't further the phone calls and um, and it was a reverse charge call and I couldn't have even explained that to my parents. They wouldn't have even understood visas and all that issue. Mm. Yeah, you can't just text your parents. No, no, it just wasn't. <laughs> wasn't like that so you but anyway we all survived and I got that visa and I walked back in and I said here's my visa I can work for the next three months and then the company was doing a tour of Australia which again I knew and I said don't worry my father will get me a visa I don't know why I thought that um his dad yeah dad'll sort it <laughs> I knew he could do things and I left Australia after that five-week tour with a visa for a year and then later that a year later I was promoted to soloist and then as a you know a, a more leading dancer the visa was not an issue mm. do you feel yeah. that that sort of culture of you're on your own uh, aided in creating a, a tight-knit group of dancers Oh, it was amazing. And it was an amazing because we were a touring company. 
So, and we performed eight shows a week. So we lived in the theatre uh, for one week, got on the bus on the Saturday night and went, went to the next um, town and did that for eight weeks. So, yes, we were very close, very bonded, and we grew up together, yeah, and we travelled the world. So it was amazing, amazing experience. And just That's where, that's where we were educated, really, in the theatre. Mm. And just sort of looking back, you know, Rockhampton's produced uh, some pretty amazing dancers, some under Miss Hanson, such as yourself and Leanne Benjamin. Yeah. Do you think there's something uh, about smaller cities that uh, kind of fosters that dedication and the pursuit of, of dreams in a different way? I think she was exceptional and I think probably there, there are, you know, exceptional teachers in lots of places. Um, you know, they could demand more, you know, we, she always finished an hour late, everyone mm. picked you up. If you're in a big city in Melbourne or something like that, it's, it's, it's more difficult. And, um, and you just went to the same teacher. You weren't looking around for someone who was better or someone thought you were better or whatever. You know, you just, you know, you were there for eight years and sometimes I think that kind of loyalty and just having that one teacher um, and it's not better around the corner was, you know, because it's just such a tough life, really, and she prepared us for that. Mm. Do you feel, so, in, in, does it, you were mentioning sort of earlier on in our chat that it can be a bit fluffy with some of the, the little kids doing ballet. Do you feel that that's more common now than, than it was when you were coming through, that it's a little bit more about show? Um, Miss Hanson wasn't fluffy. Oh, no, <laughs> I, meant, I, meant, I mean you meant like now. Yeah. Um, look, I think dance and music for anyone, whether it's fluffy or not, is advantageous because mm. you're listening to music, you're using body physically and maybe you don't want to play with a ball or or whatever and maybe there's other parts of the theatre that you... So I think dance education is fantastic. It just... I I just happened to get lucky with this particular pe- teacher and, and not all, you know, very few people end up becoming ballerinas. Mm. So, and you you know the starting point is is having musicality, having the right body proportion, having open hips, and having a good teacher. Without though that cried all that criteria, and you know I guess parental support really mm. you can't do. Mm. Yeah. So. And you've you've said throughout your book, you uh, work ethic and discipline comes up quite a lot. How important has has that been in your life and and your career? It's everything. It's everything. It's um. I think in festival ballet, and it was a hard working company. I was the hardest worker. So, um, yeah, and it held me in good stead. And um, and I still I still work hard. I still have fun, but um, it's second nature. And and it's amazing. It's amazing what you can do with hard work, really, how how far you can go. Um, yeah, I really believe in it. And, you know, I'm a teacher today and I'm, I'm amazed sometimes by the hardest workers that don't have as much talent, but then, mm. wow. So you never underestimate that. And, you know, just sort of connecting to that, like you hear in, in mainstream media, ballet is often portrayed as this cutthroat, kill or be killed world. Is that a reality that you experienced? 
Um, oh, no, not really. Um, if it was, you know, I stayed away from that kind of stuff, but not really. We were pretty much on our own and had to be supported by each other because there were no, there was nothing else to fall back on, just your mates, really. Mm. And some of them are still my great friends today. And most of them, because we were such a hard-working company and because we were exposed to Rudolph and all those wonderful, wonderful dancers, a lot of them are top of professions in the world. Well, um, you know, A, my husband with um, Ben Stevenson as well, but a lot of people that I was in Festival Ballet are the top coaches in the world. They're artistic directors. Yeah, it's an amazing um, bunch actually. So that period in London when Rudolph left the Royal Ballet and was freelancing and choreographing and building, you know, uh, choreographing huge ballets on us. It was just an amazing um, time. I was very fortunate uh, to be there in that 10-year period. And Rudolph actually knew who you were because we spent 10 years with him. Yeah, so you felt like you had a real connection. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Because, you know, I first started there when I was 19, so he definitely knew who I was. And then went up the ranks. So, you know, then I was chosen for a few things too by him. Was there just sort of transitioning from uh, being more of in the ensemble to a soloist? What did that feel? What were the changes that happened for you during that time? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, what was that me, transition like? It's quite a quick pro, pro, process. But um, Festival Ballet, because it performed so much um, that people got injured and the opportunity was there and you weren't sort of taken by the hand and looked after, they were just like, you're on. So having Miss Hanson, Miss Hanson's training, you know, I knew how to sort of think about break up a solo or stuff like that. So, you know, I just managed to do that. So you just take your small opportunities and then you're like on the casting and the next time you get the next thing and the next time you get the next thing and then you improve by that process. And um, the I think it was the second director, John Field, came in, I think I was 21, and um, and he, he really liked me and he pushed that next level from soloist to principal actually soloist to senior artist and then to principal. And I did my first one late when I was 23 and that's hard. And uh, reading that in the book, it sounds like a very young age to take on something that size. Did you just dive headfirst in and just went for it? Dive headfirst. And and, uh, (laughs) I had a wonderful partner, Jonathan Kelly, who looked after me brilliantly, another Australian actually, and John Field really believed in me. And I just, yeah, I just, that's right, I just took it on. And, um, you know, my parents came from um, Rockhampton to see that show. So it was amazing, amazing. London, Saturday night. And, you've, yeah, as we've said, you perform all over the world. Does the ballet culture differ much from country to country? Is there much of a difference? Uh, There is actually. um, It depends what company, well, in ballet terms, like I I went from London to Houston because I really wanted to work with um, Ben Stevenson and his choreography, which we're doing Nutcracker. We just finished a show here. 
and and I just loved it. It had a sort of romance about it, like it was classical, but there was something more, and I wanted to learn about that. So that's where I went, and I wasn't that interested in a lot of the Balanchine work. It was very sort of spiky and you know, um, it was nice. I like doing serenade and some of it, but not a lot of it. So, you know, culturally, yeah, they differ like that. I mean, I love Macmillan's works, the Royal Ballet, but I don't think I would have been um, a Macmillan type and I never wanted to get into a company like that. So, yeah, they all differ. And then the European companies, a lot of the German companies have a very contemporary bent as well. And I was interested in that, but not classically was where the challenge for me was because you only have a certain amount of years to do the classical up until you're 35 right and then yeah so is that yeah what what's sort of the the general lifespan of a a professional ballet dancer well a lot of the dancers well uh, a lot of the dancers are going on to 40 now but you know i think 35 36 is um you're in your prime from 28 to 35 because you just have such an assurity and such knowledge and you've improved so much and you know how to be partnered, lifted, interpret. I mean, yeah, those are the best years. Mm. Takes and, you, yeah. And, yeah, you, uh, as many people know, your husband, Lee, I mean, his story is known around the world. You did touch on in your book that your relationship caused a bit of a splash uh, in the the ballet circles, I was just wondering what kind of splash that was. Um, <laughs> like well, good I, or bad? Oh no, good. <laughs> okay, I think good. we were very we were very compatible. Um, you know, artistically, I looked size wise, age wise, looks wise, musically wise. Um, but often directors don't like people in the company to get together because if one or the other is unhappy, then mm. he can, they can lose both. So it's kind of a challenge for directors. So that's kind of what I meant because, I, didn't, you know, I think he was surprised that in the end we married and 33 years later we still are. Yeah. Yeah, because I was going to ask, I mean. <laughs> people didn't really get married and have babies in that era. You know, it was quite mm. shocking. And the director, you know, Ben was amazing because there was no sort of maternity leave or any rules and he had me back to the same position that I was in when I left, which I thought was amazing. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, because I was going to ask if, you know, do dance partners generally have offstage relationships, but it sounds like it's some, not. Some, some, because we spend a lot of time together. Yeah, yeah you build such a rapport. Yeah. And so sort of, yeah, moving into the kind of early 90s, that seemed to have a lot of big changes in your family. Um, obviously, you'd, you'd already been married by then, and then you had your first child, Sophie, was diagnosed as profoundly deaf, and you had to go mm-hmm. on tour into Canada soon after that. From, from reading the book, it sounds like the decision to stop dancing came quite suddenly. Yeah, definitely. Well, everything happened so suddenly. So we we had finished dancing at the Opera House in Sydney and we were going to Canada and then doing Nutcracker. We had Lee's parents looking after Sophie. Everything was hunky-dory and we had the test and she was diagnosed profoundly deaf, which was devastating. I had to do the tour on Canada in Canada 
And I just, you know, during that trip, I just realised, well, you know, she couldn't hear. No one was going to communicate. I mean, I, I just realised, you know, I had, well, someone had to do it. I, who was going to do it? I was fishing for people. But it, had <laughs> to be, it had to be me. So, and it needed to be a quick decision because I knew that we, you know, she was diagnosed relatively late and I knew that language was going to be a problem. I mean, yeah, so again, I think I just, you know, made the decision and took everything full on and just, you know, went for it because I wanted her to speak. Yeah. And, and just sort of, yeah. Yeah, sorry. And so what were some of the steepest learning experiences you had in that, that time just with obviously taking on so much new information Oh, it was, a, it was a massive learning curl. It was a, a, a world I'd never even heard of. I'd never even met a deaf person before. Mm. I remember Helen Keller and I went to see a play in London, Children of a Lesser God, and that was the only experience I'd ever had with a deaf um, child. So the learning curve was intense and truly devastating because, you know, I had friends that had children the same age and they were all starting to talk and communicate, and Sophie couldn't even hear. So it was a massive, and it was very um, slow and tedious, and I would go to bed thinking, will she ever speak? Mm. So, um, and that was all, so that worry was just, because what were you going to do, you know, and then, or, well, I guess we all could have gone on to sign, but then that's that was another world we were going to take on and we had a Chinese-speaking family. Lee's dream was for her to speak Chinese and I had an Australian family. You know, Auslan is different to American sign, different to Chinese sign. Lee was on stage. You had to learn sign altogether. I mean, all the whole thing was just, you know, truly a nightmare. So... Um, and luckily for me, you know, I'm one of those people that does, you know, go for things. And I, you know, by some odd reason, you know, I heard about the implant. There was no research, no Google, no nothing. So mm. somehow I find things out. And, um, you know, by reaching out, like I found an auditory verbal therapist and she encouraged me. And then I had Sophie tested for that. And they sort of refused at first because, I spent a couple of years with her and she could sort of decipher two syllables. So they had some ridiculous criteria for a profoundly deaf child. And I was right. like, well, I'm going to get it. I'm going to go to LA. I'm going to go anywhere. So um, eventually, yeah, then they, they, they gave it to me. So gave it to her. And, um, and it was quite, you know, it's not like that, oh, she's turned on, wow, you know, it's not because she couldn't she couldn't say what she could hear or not. I had to sort of guess by expressions on her face. But a couple of weeks later I knew she could hear and that was amazing. It was just such a relief and it kind of didn't matter to me what time it would take because she could hear and she just started, you know, eventually just babbling away and, um, and she didn't overhear, um, and she still struggles now. She just had to be re-implanted, actually, because they don't last forever. Oh, right. Um, How long do they last? Well, she had hers for 26 years. Okay. 
and she had to have it out last year and it's very traumatic. And now she got, she's got new hearing. And, and she had that, to Was that done in Australia? Yeah, in Melbourne. Great. Okay. But anyway, it's, she's good now. So, you know, they don't last, unfortunately, they're just computers. Um, but And with the old implant, they could, you can't tell what was wrong. With the new implant, now they can tell on a computer what's wrong inside. But the old one, they couldn't. Um, so anyway, it, it came out, it was leaking. So it was right. re-implanted. Yeah. And um, very traumatic for a year because it was exhausting and it sort of stopped her life again. But um, she's great now. Fabulous. Yeah. Good. So, is that one of the big things that you've noticed with the technology has improved or the areas that when you were first looking into this, you were like, how is, am, am I ever going to figure this out? Whereas now it's, it's much more accessible, that information. And the well, he's, she's 31 now, so I don't have yeah. much to do with it when it, you know, you know, when it, when it was breaking down and it was affecting her and she was thinking, am I mad or am I not hearing or am I hearing or am I not, you know, because you sort of second guess yourself really. Um, and then they just kind of people remap you and all of that. So it was just by accident again that I took her to a surgeon and he said it's what we call a soft fail and I never even heard of that in my life. And so so he said it'll have to come out. So Sophie said, when? Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so we did. And um, Sounds but, like you've you got know, your can-do attitude. I think so, but I don't think of it like that. I just think... You know what's the solution? Mm. Um, I think Lee and I make decisions fairly quickly, and or make a decision and live by them. I think that's why we've had such interesting, wonderful lives because you don't ponder for too. Like coming up to Queensland for Queensland Ballet. I mean, you know, I said, you know, why don't you put your hat hat in the ring? You probably won't get the job anyway. And um, he got the job, and we were like, well shall we? And we're like, oh, well, we usually don't say no to a challenge. And off we came and we've been here for eight years and it's just amazing what, yeah, I mean, what he's done. And with, with that move, was there, because obviously, you know, that you'd had such a focus on on making sure Sophie was okay, was yeah. making that move up to Brisbane pretty daunting at the time? Uh, it was leaving Sophie and Tom in Melbourne, but Tom was very independent at you know, uni, and um, it was leaving Sophie, but it was time, and Sophie had to figure out her own life too. So it was very necessary, and that was the whole process of Sophie learning to sign, living independently, discovering other deaf people. Um, yeah, so she went on her own journey. So I think that was actually great for her maturation. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, yeah, so uh, Lee took over as artistic director for Queensland uh, ballet and you've been the ballet mistress there for uh, about 10 years is that right eight years eight years, and 10 yep. years I was at the Aussie ballet teaching as well before okay. that yeah so what was I mean it'd been quite a while since you and Lee had worked together creatively what was that like coming back together in that in that oh, context so easy because he's just such a visionary so I just believe in that and we have very different jobs I mean he he's responsible for a whole organization I'm only responsible for the dancer that's in front of me so I would never do his job yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. Do 
way too much work, but he's just such a visionary and um, and the dancers are so lucky. So, you know, I just really believe in him and his vision. So, and it's proved to be amazing, really. Um, the company is just wonderful and Australia really needed that too. Yeah, I was also interested how COVID has impacted the company this year. And as you mentioned, you've been out of Nutcracker was kind of cancelled and then it came back. How has it affected everyone? Um, it's been an amazing year, actually. So we, we were just about to open our 60th uh, year and this gala program and we were having some dancers come from overseas as well. So it was very exciting. Company looked amazing. We were shut down and we didn't want the company to do nothing. So we um, pushed them to all choreograph a piece and so we ended up having 60 pieces 60 stories and then when we came back after lockdown um the government gave the powerhouse some money and they invited us to do that to do something and we because the company had no money we put this program together on a sort of tea stage with our own musicians and it was just wonderful and then other people wanted that and then um and then we thought about doing just putting Giselle together for something for the dancers to do. And then the opportunity for Hotter came up and then Anna Palaszczuk opened 100% theatre. So, we, you know, two, a week ago we said, well, do you think we can do a small nutcracker? And we went, yeah, let's do it. So we literally put, put it together. We're doing five shows and I've just seen it now and I just thought I'm so glad because all the younger dancers didn't miss that opportunity. And they were beautiful. I just started crying because there was all the little ones that are doing sort of major roles and otherwise they'd miss that growth. And so we're doing five shows of this um, and then next week we're doing uh, five shows of the 60 for 60th program and I think there's still tickets for that and it's fabulous. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, well, it's, I'm glad that it's a lot of positives yeah. have come out of it. Yeah, really great, really great. And just sort of uh, wrapping up, you worked closely with with Sophie in in writing the book, uh, yeah. writing your book Mary's Last Dance. Was there a catalyzing moment or event that uh, motivated you to start the book? Was it a discussion you had together, or? Yeah, well, not really discussion because <laughs> I intention of writing my book, um, although. Um, Lee's editor has been asking me since his book was written about 17 years ago and I would laugh my head off and say absolutely not because <laughs> I know what that entails, how much work that entails and I'm already working. So, um, And also I wouldn't have done it unless my children, particularly Sophie, wanted her story to be told and um, most of the time she didn't really, um, or particularly a period of her life. And um, she was up here um, stuck waiting for a visa to go to China and she just she started um, doing a bit of blogging and then she realised looking back, um, she asked me a lot of questions. She said, Mum, it's your story. You really need to write it. I said, I can't. She said, I will help you. And I said, no, no, no. But she <laughs> said, no, I will help you. So I wrote everything freehand and she typed oh, it wow. all up. Yeah, I wrote 460,000 words and she typed it all. Well, we had the first 160,000 and then it went to the editor and then she asked me more and more questions and then my sister-in-law typed it and I spoke it. 
And so that's how it it came about. And then we went from 460,000 words to 160. So that's the book. Yeah. yeah, wow. And so how kind of long was that process from, yes, I'm going to do this to publishing? Uh, two and a half years. I don't think I ever said, yes, I'm going to do it. I just <laughs> It just kept happening. And suddenly there was no way out. (laughs) So is there any possibility you'd ever write something else again? No. (laughs) This is it. Well, it's great. I really, I really enjoyed reading it. So, Uh, and uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for uh, joining me today, uh, Mary. Uh, So yeah, for everyone listening, Mary's last dance, it is out now. I'll put links up for where everyone can find it, order it, be a great Christmas gift for someone. Uh, Mary Lee, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Creative, creative connections.